0: Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. I feel that I'm not reading enough chapters from my book, but honestly, there's plenty of time for that later. And these little snippets that I put in every now and then, I think are quite interesting because they never really made it into my book. So I hope I'm not going to be boring you. And today I want to chat about our farm garden. Actually, I'm really doing this for my mum because she complained I never wrote about it in my book. This is Gardener's World, Zim style. Oh, it'll have the usual flowers and shrubs and trees and butterflies and the bees. But typically of Africa, just a little bit more. So, Monty Don, step aside. Hello. Zimbabwe or Rhodesia had an abundance of rambling farm gardens, some rather dry and barren given the climate, and also not everyone was interested in gardening. Others were shambolic and overrun by pests and thorny indigenous flora. And yet many, particularly in Mashonaland well, I can't speak for Matabili land, I didn't live there, But in Mishonaland, well, they were simply exquisite and took enormous skill to look effortlessly glorious. Helped, of course, by the housewives and their multi-talented, multitasking, long-suffering garden boys. Now, I'm going to call them garden boys. You would have noticed in earlier episodes I call... Speak of garden boys and boss boys and horse boys and gun boys. This was just the way it was. Some of those boys, well, they were quite old. They weren't boys at all. As a child, the first garden boy I can ever remember seemed, well, he seemed quite ancient. His name was Sakara. It's such an exotic name, Sakara. It almost sounds like the title of a Mills and Boons novelette about a handsome Arab and his harem. Well, this couldn't have been further from the truth. That said, Sakara was one of the most fascinating people I've ever set eyes upon. As old as Methuselah, my mum would say, watching him creep across the lawn, bent double, his khaki shorts patched and torn and hanging loose on his thin, aged limbs. A large, suspicious-smelling homemade cigarette was always attached to his chapped lips, and his yellow, mottled eyes would stare fixedly and angrily after us. I think he was slightly mad. Sakara never wore shoes. That was, wasn't unusual. Indeed, I don't think he owned a pair. And he delighted in showing us kids the soles of his feet, which had such deep cracks that you could wedge a penny in them. And he stalked across the garden like the grim reaper, bony and ragged, wielding a bemba, the African version of a scythe used to slice away the weeds rather than the skulls of the departed. Irascible and grumpy, Sakara not only terrified us children, but obviously scared the life out of the farm workers, to the extent that he was banished by the boss boy to live away from the workers' compound in a tumble-down mud hut halfway up the hill. Guarded by a pack of yelping, worm-riddled mutts, I suspect Sakara rather enjoyed his notoriety. Whenever we would venture anywhere near his thatched hut, we would be set upon by these mangy dogs which would chase us back up the hill, snapping at our heels. The idea of getting rabies wasn't far from our minds. I can't remember what happened in the end to Saqqara, although I do remember that his dogs had to be got rid of. They became too familiar and started encroaching on our own dog's territory. I guess Sakara moved on after that. Even an old loner needs his stinky company. Or perhaps, like Methuselah, he simply faded into the ethers of time. Our other garden boys tended to be friendlier, much younger, indeed some were probably far too young, and more adept at gardening, unlike Sakara, who had a tendency to pull out all the seedlings and just leave the weeds, or get carried away with the pruning and just leave a sad little stump poking out of the ground. Despite having very little water and only ever allowed one garden, boy, and I'm aware how ridiculous that sounds, but gardens were rather large, my mum managed to design a garden that would win the hearts and minds of many a person. Certainly won my heart. It always seemed a miracle that anything could grow under those harsh conditions. Some people quite wrongly assumed that these farm women were like those from other parts of the empire and did very little work, relying entirely on their staff. You can just imagine them sitting on a sedan chair with a fan, waving the fan in the heat and complaining about the dust and the flies and please would someone bring me a cool lemonade. This was quite untrue of these Zimbabwean housewives. The farm gardens were stunning because of big dreams and hard work and only became a reality because of grand visions. It takes a special kind of person to look at a bleak, dry piece of bush and imagine how the mown grass will eventually undulate down the hill to the ornamental ponds and beyond, rolling kukuyu lawns stretching down to lush borders of colourful Lizzie and blousy canners, Grecian urns overflowing with petunias and a tangle of nasturtium and forget-me-not. It's funny how modern gardens are now all indigenous, which of course, makes so much more sense. But the Rhodesian farm garden was a riot of both domestic and foreign flowers and trees. Mum's green fingers extended beyond the pretty English flower so popular in Mvukwis, but also to the more exotic. Arguably, the gardens in the higher, more temperate elevation in Mvukwis were more classically English. Annie Francis on Galloway Estate with her acres of David Austin roses, heavy with blooms the size of cabbages. Or Gina Hyde on Pemby Farm with her perfectly manicured borders and swaths of flame lilies at Christmas time. The list went on. There were so many talented women up in Mvokwizh. Mum tried hard with her European annuals and even had a dahlia named after her called the Libby Wood, a stunning blossom in a wonderful raspberry ripple colour grafted lovingly by Len Healy, the caretaker of the Mvukwis Country Club. Len was a champion dahlia grower. To a kid growing up in Lib's wild garden, the plants native to Africa, especially South Africa, provided us with the most pleasure. Our Masitui farm garden was a verdant wonderland, providing what seemed like the entire spectrum of garden genre. From the roses and geraniums and baskets full of petunias up near the house, to a thick, impenetrable jungle, Tumbling down the hill and around the pool, a blend of the classic and the tropical. It was kind of kitsch around the pool, with Grecian columns and urns. But further along, a series of natural fish ponds, rich with bulrushes and water lilies, drained down the hill past a rock garden, quite overwhelmed with shrubs and tall, ancient aloes and beyond the aloe garden grew what she called her secret garden, a wilderness of euphorbias, moonflowers, plumbago, and morning glory. So many of the flowers we took for granted were native to South Africa, from the glorious sky-blue of the agapanthus to the fun, bubbly gladiolus, the banks of insane jewel-like Namaqualand and Barberton daisy, the gardenias, geraniums, felicia, African violets, and the proud lush reds, whites, and striped amaryllis to the yellow and white arums, all native to southern Africa. Her garden was a veritable rainforest, not to mention the what's what of southern African flora. Near the swimming pool, Jurassic cycads, both male and female, quite prehistoric and once the food of dinosaurs, grew to massive sizes and sprouted bright red, fabulous fruits full of deadly neurotoxins. Delicious monsters, or in Latin, Monstera Deliciosa, with their huge scale-like penile fruits. Overgrew the veranda, climbing several metres high, their arterial roots literally holding up the wall. Also on the veranda, my favourite plant of all, the weird, luminous green jade vine, offered much needed shade on hot days. Jade vines, Strongylodon macrobotris, have an ethereal, claw like pale green blossom which hangs in bunches like grapes, and are fertilized by bats, the flowers emitting a fluorescent aura in the dark in order to lure them in. Ferns of all varieties imaginable, gathered from the rivers and hills surrounding the farm, spread their verdurous fronds down the slopes to the fish ponds. And as with every African garden, Cacti and aloe and euphorbias, transplanted from crags and copies and crannies from all over the country, provided a welcome hue of pinks, yellows and magentas across the otherwise grey bush felt. King and queen palms, their fronds laden down with the nests from rowdy African weaver birds, jostled while... Fan palms from Mauritius and pampas grasses from Argentina and old, gnarled Hawaiian frangipani in the most outlandish colors drop their intoxicating blossoms all over the lawns. And fighting for space were the bright yellow hibiscus with sangria-colored hearts, vermilion heliconia, coral-red lobster claw, and the bird-like strelitzia. Generally thought to be from California, but in fact, once again, native to South Africa. The garden was constantly at the mercy of my mother's dreaded secateurs. Edward's scissor hands had nothing on Lib. The instant a blossom or flower would show the teeniest tiny sign of fatigue or dehydration or disease, it was off with its head. Much to the fascination of us kids, snip, 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 like Aunt Morticia, huge, gorgeous blooms would tumble down to the flower bed, scattering their petals across the lawn. Oops, she might say, didn't mean to cut that one. And then on to the next victim. It was a total surprise that we had any colour at all in our garden, Fortunately, nature had other ideas and managed to grow faster than her fingers could cut. This is what we grew up amongst and took for granted, I suppose. Although we were always aware of the beauty surrounding us, the smells and the sounds and naturally the wildlife that was attracted to this oasis, the good and the bad pythons and the adders, the field mice, the hawks, the starlings and the squirrels, the toads and the frogs and the geckos, and an abundance of butterflies from the common African monarch to the tiny swarms of painted ladies or pea blues, the delicate fluttering swallowtails and cabbage whites and the swift Caraxes that would glide across the lawn like streamlined, mosaic torpedoes diving down to the nearest patch of manure. Caraxes were my favourite to collect, and certainly the most challenging. They are the spitfires of the butterfly world. They don't flit and kiss like normal butterflies. They don't alight on blossoms and sup of the nectar. They dive-bomb to the nearest steaming dog-turd for a good, tasty gobble of shit, then dash off to safety to clean and stroke their proboscis with delicious abandonment. One month was never the same as another, and despite the lack of water, and only one garden boy, as we were constantly reminded it always managed to remain green and lush and irresistibly glorious. Mum never let us forget that it took hard work and clever design to make it look so wild, so abandoned and tumbled and rich. The African bush outside the fence waited patiently for the day when it could reclaim this patch of land and rid itself of the imposters that so, arrogantly and proudly grew up the hill as indeed that day would come I loved that garden never too manicured it just had a life of its own with nooks and crannies where you could hide out or run around and build forts a poem I read describes the Rhodesian garden perfectly and could have been written for my mum This is attributed from the collection Rhodesian Reverie Memories by Robert Heinrich Percival Cornell A Rhodesian Garden In our garden there always grew Shrubs and trees Rhodesians knew Pride of India, a bamboo so high Its tasseled fronds seemed to touch the sky Bougainvillea of colors rare mixed with yesterday and tomorrow's scented air. Jacarandas a flamboyant or two, dressed in their spring or summer hue. Poinsettias and petria side by side, the loveliest background for a bride. A feast of color and springtime breeze, crowned above by the Masasa trees. For all the trees nature and color has dressed, the giant massas are the most blessed. If you enjoyed this episode about gardens, why not tune into my next episode, which is Conversations with Peter Wood? I have a great treat for you. My mother will be talking to me by phone from Zimbabwe. Well, That's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.